You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. What we're about to study, what we're about to read and look at in Ezra chapter 9, is uh, it's an account of Israel's uh, faithlessness. It's the word that's used throughout the text. We might read it as unfaithful, right? But faithlessness as their sin is revealed to Ezra. Um, and, then, and then as we read and as we study, we're also going to read um, Ezra's response. It's a really gut-wrenching response to, to what he hears, the report that he gets. Um, but before we go there, so that you know we're headed there, I think because we haven't been in Ezra the last two weeks, um, but that's been the study we've been doing for the last few months, I thought it would be important to do a quick recap. So on the screen in front of you, uh, you'll notice uh, three kind of quick bullet points, um, but a, a recap of from chapter 7, verse 25, through chapter 8, verse 36, of uh, the, the last few sermons we've preached. They're just kind of get our minds back in the story again. Um, the first thing uh, you'd see as point number one there. Um, Verse 25 of chapter 7 through verse 15 of chapter 8, um, what we saw was Ezra was beginning to execute the mission and the vision that God had given him, right? What was that mission and vision? Um, that, that mission and vision was simply to restore a people of the word, right, um, in Jerusalem. And to beautify the temple, the newly rebuilt temple. So those were, that was kind of the two-pronged mission and vision that had been given to him. And so what did Ezra do? He, he gathered a, a ministry team. A big group of people, uh, made a list of who his teammates were, um, and then as we studied that portion of the text, what we learned uh, was a couple of kind of key um, principles, I think, that we talked through that week. We learned that without a clear calling, if you and I don't have a clear sense of calling on our lives from God himself, if you and I can't say, God called me to this and I know that, then the mission of my life and the mission of your life, what we do and how we live, will eventually drift into what we would call self-centeredness rather than self-sacrifice. Uh, we learned um, this fun phrase that many of us have heard in leadership that uh, uh, poor preparation promotes poor performance. Lots of peas. <coughs> poor preparation promotes poor performance, but... Prior preparation prevents poor performance. Let me say that ten times fast and get your tongue tied. I also learned that week that uh, a mission without organization uh, is just merely words on a piece of paper, right? Or words on a wall. If you don't have organization, your mission is just a bunch of words. Um, we also learned that mission without a vision, the other side of that, a mission without a vision is just simply a trip without a destination. As your mission is what you're doing, your vision is the light ahead. It's, it's the goal. It's, it's, it's where you want to be. It's what you want to accomplish. The reason that high schoolers are going through high school is because you have a vision for a career. You have a vision for college, right? Um, you could use different analogies. That's just the one in the moment I can think of. So, um, we also learned, I think, in that whole week, 
that uh, executing the mission and the vision that God has given us requires some things like preparation and organization, as well as a posture that is ready to catch the vision. I think I talked in the, in the analogy and the term of a catcher's mitt and a catcher's um, posture, being ready to catch the ball. We talked about how vision really isn't taught, but it's caught. And in that whole section of text, we were able to see some of those things in what Ezra was doing. Next section of text we talked through was uh, chapter fifth, or verse 15 of chapter 8 through verse 20. Um, and we talked about how Ezra responded to the problem of the missing Levites. Remember that? Um, he, he gathered his leadership team. Before heading to Jerusalem, he gathers them on the banks of a river. And when he gets there, he's looking through his list of people and he realizes, man, there's some people missing, some real key players on the team that we need here. And they're called Levites. And uh, he responded to that shortage of leadership by doing what? He went and recruited some leaders, right? He recruited some leading men, I think the text said, leading men of insight from within his current team. And then he sent those guys to recruit the Levites for the work that lied ahead of them in Jerusalem. And really the high point of that text, the big reason Ezra is recording all of this is that um, he witnessed God's work in providing the people that were needed for the team. <coughs> God provided not only the Levites, but then some. Because those Levites brought along a bunch of other people with them. And I think the one of the questions we wrestled with uh, during that week of studying uh, through that portion of the text is we, we wrestled through this question of why would anybody ever leave the comfort that the Levites were living in at that time and leave that for a life of sacrifice? Who would ever want to leave the, the comfort of the cushy life these folks had built for themselves to take a thousand mile journey to Jerusalem? Like, why would anybody want to do that? And the answer that, that, that we kind of landed on that week is that Ezra and his team had caught a vision. And the vision they had caught was that there was a very good reason to leave the comfort and head towards the sacrifice of that journey, to embrace the self-sacrificing lifestyle of taking off on that thousand-mile journey to Jerusalem to pursue that mission and that vision, and the vision that they had caught was that there would be a better king seated on the throne of people's hearts. Because the promises all throughout the Old Testament is that God would seat his king on people's hearts. So that was week two. The third portion of text uh, leading into this week uh, was verses 21 through 36 of chapter 8. Um, and when I think Donnie preached that week, and Donnie really focused on worship. Um, what we saw taking place in the text is this trip to Jerusalem. They're really kind of simple. Um, they finally took the thousand-mile trip, and they get there. Uh, there was one commentator who um, is talking about this section of the text, and he says that this portion of the text, really what it is, is it's a tale of faith. That's really what's happening. Um, their faith is on display in this text. They're putting their money where their mouth is. Um, 
in fact, there's even a portion of that text where Ezra kind of alludes to that, like, well, I can't go ask for soldiers to go with us now because I said God's going to protect us and provide for us. So it's this tale of faith, this commentator said. And, and what happens in that section of the text is that we are reminded that the journey of pursuing this mission and this vision that God has given us, it's a dangerous pursuit. It's not safe. It was never meant to be. Now, the picture of our Savior's journey is a dangerous journey. And when we claim to pick up a cross and carry that, like he did to become his disciples, we should expect nothing less than hardship and danger, suffering and difficulty. So, we're reminded of that in that text. That pursuing the mission and the vision that God has given us is a very dangerous pursuit. And what it requires, if you're going to get on that journey, is it requires an uncompromising level of trust in God. If you trust in anything else and you waver from your trust in the Lord, well, we know where that gets us, right? So the reality in that text um, is that even though God's guidance, when you think about God's guidance, when he guides us in our journey of faith, when you think about God's guidance, it may look a little bit different, right, in very similar situations uh, for very different people, even though that may be true, of uh, the journey of pursuing God's mission and vision for our life and for, for your life, it's still a journey that requires great faith. And uncompromising faith looks like this. It is expressed in very specific situations. It's not just this big, grand kind of story with no definition. Each of us is on a journey that is very specific, and it requires an uncompromising faith. Uncompromising faith relies on the assurance of God's promises that they are true. Uncompromising faith receives strength from a trustworthy source, and there's only one trustworthy source, and that's God. The real issue of sin in our lives is that we continuously go back to these filthy waters and these filthy places of food, right, that we trust in to sustain us rather than going to the Lord. And that's a part of our journey. No matter how old in Jesus you are this morning, whether you're not following him yet or whether you've been following him for 30 or 40 years, the tendency to go back to a nasty trough and not trust in the Lord and his promises and him as a trustworthy source, that's part of the journey. It's part of the journey. And God in his sovereignty continues to draw us back to him, doesn't he? And strengthen us in the midst of those seasons, despite our failures. And what it does is it deepens the resolve of your faith. That's what I find time and time again when I recognize it. Man, I quit trusting in the Lord again in this moment. I said a sharp word. I cast a second glance. Whatever it may be. In those moments, and I recognize that God's promises are true and he is trustworthy. And he hasn't left me. What that does is strengthen my faith yet even more because nothing that I can do can change his love for me or his presence in my life, right? Despite my sin, God remains faithful and trustworthy. So this is, this is the uncompromising faith of that journey. 
And part of that picture, too, and you saw it that week in the text, is that an uncompromising faith will experience victory. And it will express grateful worship, which is the point that Donnie really drove home. (laughs) So ultimately, that journey of a faith-filled follower of God, uh, it's going to be a journey of doing what? Giving all of yourself away, which is a very countercultural message, not just in America, not just in the world, but in the church today. It's a countercultural message because the message is a call to give all of you away, not caring about all of what you might get. It's a countercultural message. Um, So it's a message of giving all of yourself away in a mission that would do what? Result in this selfless act of worshiping God. Not just you, not just me, but others. That's why they were headed to Jerusalem. And that's the way that week's text ended. So with all of that, with all of that context in place, we leap into the text for today. That's what's been happening beforehand. So I want to invite you guys, if you can, if you would stand with me. I want to read the text for this morning. It'll be on the screen in front of you. <coughs> and if you have a, a Bible, you can, <coughs> you can definitely go there and follow along with me as well. <coughs> it's Ezra chapter 9. We're going to read the whole chapter and then kind of blaze our way through it. Beginning in verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said... The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Those are a lot of names. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant And to give us a secure hold within his holy place. That our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us 
his steadfast love before the kings of Persia, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commands, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Hey, Father, as we uh, get ready to study this text, your word, where I just want to begin with uh, confessing how completely inadequate I feel to, uh, to preach this text. A sinful, fallen, and, and broken, often rebellious man. Uh, even after 22 years of following you, it still shocks me how often I fail and run headlong after sin. And I would think that I would have that beaten by now. I, I read this passage, and I hear this passage read, and I, I think, who can stand before you? None of us in this room can stand before you because of our sin. I think it's really easy sometimes, Father, to jump from there to the good news of the gospel, and we need the good news of the gospel, and yet it's probably good for us to have a very humble, dark reminder that we're broken. So Lord, help us to, uh, help us to sit in that the same way that Ezra sits in that throughout the majority of this text. And also, Father, grant us a little bit of reviving in the midst of this as well. Help our hearts not to rush away from what your spirit may want to convict us of, but also give us the encouragement and the assurance that we need. That for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. I trust you do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So again, as I um, said a minute ago, super heavy text, right? No getting away from it. Um, 
this passage just simply uh, describes Ezra's kind of his initial response to hearing this report that Israel had fallen into sin once again. Um, and that, that, that report of, of Ezra's uh, or of Israel's sin, um, it, it absolutely appalls Ezra, right? Um, and then he responds to that. And, and he responds to that report by doing what? By crying out to God. That's kind of the simple overview of what's taking place in the text. Nothing easy, nothing light about what we're uh, about to study. Um, the, the recognition of the depths of our sin really should always leave us feeling a little bit devastated, if not a lot bit devastated, um, and a lot more in need of a Savior than we were before. So the first thing we see is this report, right? It's this report of Israel's faithlessness, verses 1 through 2. question is, what was the sin? What was the sin that Israel was guilty of? And this is a tough one. I think people have misused and probably abused this passage quite a bit uh, throughout the uh, centuries within the church. Um, I, I think, though, if you do the study, I think the simple answer to the question is that Israel had simply disobeyed God's command not to marry into the surrounding nations, right? The phrase that's used here in the text is that the, the holy race of Israel had been commanded not to mix itself, right? Um, like a really bad mixed drink. Not to mix itself with the peoples of the lands. Now, you could go back to De uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and you can go back to Exodus 34, and you can kind of do some of your own study on what's taking place here and what God had commanded. But at first glance, when you read it, I think that this, this, this command sounds kind of racist to our ears. And that's part of the problem because the church has misused and abused this text and others in that way over the years. You can look up the history and you can find that. So it sounds racist immediately to us, but I, I, I think we need to understand what's actually taking place. Um, the word for race uh, that is used here in verse 2 is not quite what we think of when we hear the word race. Okay? The word race there I don't think is meant to describe a certain skin color. We need to understand these are all Middle, Middle Eastern folks. Okay, so that, that, that should just kind of dispel that immediately. Um, so it's not, it doesn't have to do with skin color. I think it's meant more to describe a spiritual condition within the surrounding people groups in the land. There is an ethnic quality to the word race in the Bible. And there were ethnicities within the Middle Eastern culture for sure. And that had a very small part to play in it. Um, but if you were to do a lineage, there are lineages in the Bible of Jesus in his background, people who were in his lineage, um, they, all the people in his, not all of the people in his family tree were people of some kind of pristine ethnic background, okay? Uh, ethnically, there was some mixture there. And we've talked about some of this before already. You've got somebody like Rahab in there. Um, Boaz and Ruth, and you've got all sorts of different lines there. The, 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 
the emphasis throughout the Old Testament is not so much, when God gives these commands, it's not so much on a specific ethnicity or race as we would hear it, but it is about a spiritual condition within a people group. What God has done is he has simply commanded Israel all throughout the Old Testament not to marry people who are practicing unbelievers. Now, doesn't that start to sound a little bit familiar if you're familiar with the New Testament, right? I mean, I've always told my kids, sorry, kiddos, always told my kids, don't practice missionary dating, it's bad. Don't practice missionary dating, it's bad. I'll just tell my kids that. I've, I've made that comment to, to many people. Uh, missionary dating is the idea that I'm a believer, I'm really attracted to this person, and they're not a believer, but if I can just get with them, they'll become a Christian too. Um, it's dangerous. Okay. And the general principle throughout all of Scripture is simply that. If you know your New Testament fairly well, you know this is confirmed by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, right? Do not be unequally yoked. Um, you think of King Solomon. King Solomon had this issue as well. How many, how many wives did he have? Who knows? It's hundreds at least. It was more than that. It was 700? Something like that. It was a lot. I don't know why any man wants to have that many wives, Okay. I just, I don't know why anybody want to have that many spouses. We can generalize it a little bit more if we need to. <coughs> Solomon, Solomon broke this command and had married into many wives from surrounding nations and had even built shrines then, temples, church buildings, whatever you call them, to their gods and even worshipped with them. These are the reasons that God throughout scripture says, do not become unequally yoked because inevitably, that pulls you away from God, and it makes a big mess. Don't mix that together. Now, the real shocker in this text in Ezra, here's the shocker. The shocker is that Israel's leaders, their pastors, their elders, their deacons, their key leaders, the people you see on their website as their core team, their leaders had opened the door for this. It opened the door for this kind of sin. And it appears that those leaders, if you do some of the study, had even, listen, divorced their Jewish wives so that they could marry influential pagan wives, typically the daughters of really wealthy landowners. Um, that's scary, if that's true. There's some debate about that. But if that's true in the history of Israel... Um, there's something much deeper than merely unequally yoked marriage. There's also divorce from previous wives out of a desire to advance self. Self always seems to be an issue, doesn't it? When it comes to living out this life, self is an issue. I mean, I think this is why Jesus says something about crucify, I don't think it's Paul that says this, crucify your sinful desires. Um, go to war against that sin in your life. It's a constant picture of that battle against self if Jesus would become king and lord of our lives, right? So this is the report of, of, of Israel's faithless sin. It's a real shocker. It's pretty scary. It's pretty dark. The question is, what do you do? 
What do you do when you receive such a grievous report of sin in the family of God? Well, they didn't have Facebook back then to go post stuff on Facebook about, did you see what John MacArthur did this week? Okay. Um, or anybody else for that matter. They didn't have Facebook for that. Um, and I don't know what Ezra would have done if there was Facebook other than what we see him doing. He has this initial response when he receives the report. And I always like to think about initial responses because initial responses typically kind of show you something that's going on inside of you at that time, right? Um, sometimes your initial response will be to sin when you experience something. Other times your initial response might be to resist that sin and continue to live a life of worshiping God when you experience something, whether it's experience of fear or the experience of feeling unsafe or maybe you feel uncomfortable, right? When, when those kind of core idolatries start to get challenged, the way that you respond says something about what's going on inside of you. How do you typically respond when you recognize there's some really grievous sin going on here. And in this context, it's not so much sin that's going on inside of Ezra, personally. And we can apply it that way for sure, but that's more, that's more uh, generally, outside of him, he's looking in Israel, in what you might call the church family, and say, boy, I see a bent towards this kind of sin, right? So you could kind of apply that in our nation, in our church family, in the church in America, across the world, we should also apply it to ourselves. One thing I think is important to note, too, is that when Ezra does respond, he counts himself among the sinners. He doesn't count himself as outside looking in and going, oh, you filthy, rotten animals. <laughs> That's not his response. Now, I'm not saying Ezra was perfect, because only Jesus was perfect. But in this response, I find some, some real fascinating, very godly things about Ezra's response that are not always the same in my responses. And I'm sure aren't always the same in your responses, if we're honest, right? Case in point. <clears throat> when the Cornhuskers don't win the games, all right, it's pretty trivial. But isn't it crazy how a football game or a volleyball game can bring out some of the most sinful pieces or parts of the inside of you? You know, it's not even, it's nothing eternal about those things, but fascinating sometimes how depressed I get at the end of a game when my team doesn't win. <laughs> Ezra's initial response to this report, when, when you read um, um, that Ezra here's this report of Israel's faithlessness. What does he say? Verses three through four. He says this. He says, I tore my garment. You know, you think of Hulk Hogan ripping his shirt off, but probably not quite tore his garment, right? He says, I tore my garment and my cloak. I pulled my hair from my head and beard. Now, ah, <laughs> uh, that's, that's tough. That's right. I've been growing this thing. Idolatry. I've been growing this thing for a few years. I pull my beard out because of some sin. <laughs> Initial responses. Pulled the hair from his head. Pulled his, the hair from his beard. He sat appalled, it says. 
And then all who trembled, love that, all who trembled. When was the last time you or I trembled at the words of God? I find myself oftentimes starting to fall asleep as I'm trying to get through my readings. I'm getting bored, or I don't have much time, or when was the last time I sat and trembled at the words of the God of Israel? He says, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles. That group of people, he says, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. <coughs> now, I think oftentimes we have a tendency to just ignore or, or to justify or to compare or to minimize, right, the sin that we see or the sin in our own lives. Let me say it again. I don't know where you land in this. Maybe it's all of them. Um, I have a tendency to ignore it, right? I just got to kind of, yeah, just, okay, yeah, that was sinful. Can we just move on? Just kind of ignore it. Um, justify it? Well, yeah, I sinned, but if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done this. Right? You recognize that in your patterns too? I, I recognize that in my patterns. Um, this part of that sinful flesh that's not totally ripped out of us yet, isn't it? And that's one of the hardest things I think about walking in this, this journey in this life is knowing that when God looks at me and says, you're a saint because you trusted in Jesus, you're perfect, you're holy, you're righteous. All of my son's righteousness I've given to you and all of your filth and all your dirtiness I've taken at the cross. And I find myself like the Romans 7 passage, right? I know the good things I'm supposed to do and yet it's the things I am supposed to do that I don't do. And it's the things that I'm not supposed to do that. I do, 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 yeah. right? Uh, that's, I mean, where else do you go? Every commentator goes there. <laughs> like a dog to his vomit, right? <laughs> it's just, hmm, you ignore it, you justify it, or you compare, right? Well, I didn't, I mean, my sin, that wasn't, it wasn't as bad as Dominic's, I don't think, I mean, Ice cream. Ice cream. <laughs> Ice cream. Inside jokes from the pulpit. Um, <laughs> or minimize. And, and hey, back to the comparison thing. It's not just that I might compare myself with Dominic or Patrick or Kim or whoever or my son Lewis. Um, it's that I would compare myself with myself. I would do that. Um, sometimes the shame of sinning can cause you to begin to kind of compare yourself with your past self. And I, that's easy for me to do. Um, if you know my past story, I've held guns to people's heads. Literally. Literally. Okay? A second further, a few people are dead today um, because of my past life. So I, I could look at my life today and easily make comparisons to the past, and you'll hear me do that. Now, at times I do that because God's encouraging me. Look where I brought you from. At the end of the day, those comparisons cannot be used to excuse. Right? So, we have these tendencies, I think. Last one I think we do is we like to minimize. Oh, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. We just minimize things. And in so doing, we minimize the work of our Savior at the cross. We minimize his power and his work and what he wants to do when we minimize our sin. Really, we should own sin as horrible as it is in the same way that Ezra is doing here, right? Because that's not what Ezra does. He doesn't minimize, doesn't justify, doesn't compare, 
Doesn't do any of those things. What does he do? The word appalled is used twice. Think of that word appalled. What was the last thing that appalled you? I'll tell you, recently one of the things that appalled me is what's happening over in the Ukraine. When I saw this last week that a children's shelter had been bombed, man, I sat on my couch and I was appalled. Right? When was the last time I was that appalled over my sin or the sin in the church? I was appalled at that. Shows up twice in the text that he sat appalled. And it carries this sense of absolute devastation, right? Just totally devastated by this. So, so devastated was Ezra at the report of sin in God's family that he did what? He tore his clothes. He pulled out his own hair in the midst of his grief. I've never been so devastated by the sin of my, my own sin or the sin of a church family or a nation that I tore my clothes or pulled my hair out because I was that devastated. Never been there. I wonder if I ought to be moved there. You realize how destructive, when you, when you really think about how painful, how dark the presence of sin really is, is when you think about that the depravity of sin that doctrine when you when you sit in that for a while that was what Ezra did that was his initial response to the report of sin in God's family last thing we see taking place is that Ezra cries out to God in prayer right the last thing we see see this prayer of Ezra's um, in the text, verses 5 through 15, it's the majority of the passage that we read. Um, this prayer of Ezra's, man, it's perhaps one of the most beautiful, on the one hand, as well as the most heart-wrenching prayers in all of the Old Testament, I think. Outside of maybe David's prayer, Psalm 51, Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1, both those prayers. This one, I think, is right on par with those when you study them and when you think about the verbiage and the wording and what's taking place. See, in this prayer, what does Ezra do? Ezra confesses, he uses all sorts of words that are, that are really important. He confesses shame. Shame is powerful. He confesses sin, iniquity, I think he uses that word quite a bit. He confesses guilt on behalf of Israel, himself included, though we're pretty certain Ezra did not give up his Jewish wife to go marry a wealthy landowner's daughter. He counts himself a mun that sin, that blows my mind. Brings you back to the idea that sin leavens the entire loaf, right? Puffs everything up. My sin doesn't just affect me. And even if you don't exactly know what my sin has been like recently, it still affects you in the spiritual realm somehow. I think, I think that's right, yeah. He confesses shame, he confesses sin, he confesses guilt on behalf of Israel. He confesses God's favor and God's generosity, God's love, his presence, his, his protection. He recognizes the consequences of sin in, in his prayer. And he confesses God's merciful and just character there towards the end. And then his concluding statement is simply this. No one can stand in the presence of God because of the seriousness of sin. <coughs> I don't want to move on too fast from this part. It's, this is like the meatiest chunk of the text, really. So think with me for a few minutes. 
Ezra literally sat in the devastating realization of Israel's sin all day long. All day. And then he falls on his knees before the Lord in prayer. And in his prayer, what does he say? He says that he is absolutely ashamed. He says he's blushing. His face is changing colors. He's so ashamed because of their sin. Because of their their guilt that has been, he kind of uses this term like piling up as high as the heavens for generations. This isn't just a one-off thing that happened. This isn't just a little, a little puddle that they stepped in and got their shoe a little bit dirty. They're totally infected with sin and it's piled up as high as the heavens for generations. He recognized that God had shown his grace to Israel by doing what? By paving the way back to Jerusalem. And even though they're technically still enslaved to the kingdom of Persia, What Ezra can see is that God has been gracious towards them despite their utter sinfulness. Despite our sin, God is gracious and merciful and generous, and he sends Jesus. Right? That's the message of the gospel. You can get all hung up, all you want, on all sorts of secondary weird doctrines right now. I just encourage you, stick with the gospel. We don't need anything else. The gospel is what saves you and sustains you. And without it, it's hopeless. Ezra knew that God had not left them. It's one of the greatest promises in all of scripture. I will never leave you or forsake you. Ezra recognizes, he knows God has not left them, even though they probably deserved to be left. God had not left. See, that's the image of grace and mercy. Grace is that you are given what you don't deserve. And mercy is what you do not get what you deserve. And those are two sides of one coin. And that's God's love. Without grace and without mercy, you have no steadfast love. You're getting what you don't deserve. And you're not getting what you do deserve. And in that, in that, Ezra says, man, I know that God hasn't left us. God is actually extending his steadfast love, his presence, his protection towards us, even in the midst of our rebellion. This is what God is doing. And Ezra knew that the consequences of sin were horrible. He knew that the consequences for rebelling against God's commands would be severe. Why? Because God's commands are meant to keep us safe. God's commands are meant to keep us pure. They're meant to keep us holy, walking rightly. Which means that, on the other hand, when you rebel against God's commands, what are you doing? When you're rebelling against God's commands, you're casting off the safety that he's trying to give you. You're you're, you're jumping into impurity and saying, no, your purity is not for me, God. When, When you're casting off his commands, you're saying, I don't want your holiness. I want to try to do it on my own. Those are the consequences. And the spiritual inheritance, Ezra says here, that will be passed along to their children. And that spiritual inheritance will be tainted with sin. It's that generation after generation after generation, sins piling up as high as the heavens are above the earth. It's an absolute humbling picture of the depravity of sin. How serious and deep and dark it is. And even as Ezra recognizes these painful consequences of sin and rebellion, 
what does he also see? He also sees the mercy of God. I brought it up a minute ago. But he sees the mercy of God when he says this. He says, God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. That's verse 13. He has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. You do something wrong, you know. Boy, I deserve some consequences for that. Um, It's not just that you get away with it, but that it's somewhere in the midst of that. Somebody extends mercy to you. You get punished less than you actually deserve. That's what Ezra notices in verse 13. That's what God has done for his people. That's what he's done for each of us in the cross of Christ. You and I should have been the ones on that cross when Jesus died, right? That was our debt. We owed that debt because of our sin. And yet Jesus comes while we were still his enemies. And he dies that death on that cross to pay the ransom, to pay the debt for us. While we were cursing and swearing at him and rejecting him and rebelling against him and honestly driving those nails into his hands and beating him with that whip, it was you and I that crushed that crown of thorns on his head. It was you and I that mocked him by our sin. And yet Jesus selflessly pursues the mission and vision that was, that was between him and the Father and the Spirit to come and be a ransom for many so that we might go from enemies to children, to family, right? That's mercy and grace. It'd be very easy, much easier to give your life away selflessly for someone that is innocent. Maybe for the children who died in that bombing in the Ukraine. Oh, we got military guys in the room. That would be easier. But to give my life away for somebody who's rotten, who abused me, this is what Jesus did. This is the passage. And Ezra ends with that picture, like I said earlier, that... um, And God is a God of mercy, but he's also the God of justice, right? And Ezra knows dark dark, dark days are going to be ahead if Israel doesn't repent of this sin quickly, knows that there's no guilty person that can stand in the presence of God, knows that we've all been punished less than we deserve, and yet no guilty person can stand in the presence of God. That's, That's where he leaves off. When I studied this passage, I... I feel pretty overwhelmed by the reality of my own sin. I'm just one guy with a specific vocation, right? Everybody in this room, we all have different vocations. Even if you're retired, you have a vocation. Joe says he works more now. (laughs) right? I think something like that. I feel like it some days. Um, For those of you who are retired in the room, I've heard that story. Like, I think I work more now than I did back then. But I'm just a guy with a vocation in the room, right? I stand on stage some days and and preach the word and... and, uh, a real tension between the uh, professional Christian and uh, the real Christian who just, um, if you've been with us for any period of time, you, it doesn't take long for you to probably hear some of my own failures. 
And I get to passages like this, and it, this is hard. It's hard enough not to be a professional Christian and, and be the Christian who's sitting at home or maybe at a table reading or hearing this passage and going, man, I feel the weight of sin. And I do feel the weight of sin. I think of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I look at verses 9 and 10. This kind of, I think, is a good connection as I try to wrap it up. Um, Apostle Paul says there, he says, hey, do, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's a bracket here. He starts with that and he ends with that. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. I think there's a list of ten here. Neither the sexually immoral. Let me ask you a question. Is that you today? I hate to go there. Because I that's hard. It's hard to ask myself these questions. Have I cast a second look lately? Have I gone further than that lately? Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolater. This is a person who bases their life on idolatry, putting things in front of God. Nor the adulterers. It reminds me that if you cast a second look lustfully, you have now committed adultery in your heart, which is different than committing adultery in the flesh, by the way. It's a good distinction to make. Both are sin. I'm thankful when a guy or a woman has not done that in the flesh yet because that's a next move from doing that in the heart. Does that make sense? Still, adultery, nonetheless. So, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Very clear word there, by the way. The words used there are meant for both the active and the passive partner in that relationship. In that culture, just a side note, in that culture, uh, in the Roman culture, the active partner, the dominant partner, was celebrated. The passive partner was not. What Paul is saying here is very countercultural to what's going on. So those who try to make the argument that oh, that was just a cultural thing, no, it wasn't. Paul's condemning both when he says this. So, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves. Anybody bounce a check lately? hard to see that one as stealing, but it is. <laughs> um, nor the greedy. Hey, I'm greedy when there's steak on the table for sure. <laughs> nor drunkards. Nor revilers. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Starts with, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Makes the list, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't get around this list. You can't minimize it. You can't justify it. You can't compare. This is an absolutely condemning list to read. And when I work my way through that list, I can see that I have sinned in nearly every way that that list describes. I think for me there may only be one in there that I'm not guilty of. I'm guilty of almost the entire list. When I, when I think about that, I'm reminded that Ezra says, no one who is guilty of sin can stand in the presence of God. And I feel devastated by that. But then if you stay in 1 Corinthians 6, and you read verse 11, 
Verse 11 says, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. You see, the grace and the mercy, the steadfast love of God that Ezra confesses in his prayer It receives its power in the person and the work of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. The humbling thing about the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, returning, is that God loved us and he extended his mercy and his grace towards us while we were still in our sins, when we could not stand in front of a perfect father in the midst of our rebellion against God. We were throwing an absolute horrific fit against him, and Jesus stepped into that darkness. He stepped into that wickedness of my sin, your sin if you trust in him today. And he paid the price to ransom you and I at the cross of Calvary. And he now calls us his saints, his very own. Because he left the tomb empty then on the third day, what do we have? We, we have the victory over Satan, sin, and death. It's ours. And when we walk into God's presence in eternity, what will our Father say? He will say, well, he will first step right towards us. He will pursue us. And I think here's the words that you'll hear. Not guilty. Come into my presence, my good and faithful son, my good and faithful daughter. That's a picture of grace and mercy that I think would set you free wage war against the sin in your life on a daily basis. Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we, uh, as we close in a time of worship to music and remembering your broken body and your shed blood at the cross. Pray, Father, that you would come by the power of your spirit and minister among us, your sheep, your children. You are a good master shepherd who keeps watch over his flock. And we are your flock. And we need you more than ever trust you to do that in Jesus name. Amen. As we You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.